The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young for October 9th, 2020. That puts us a scant 25 days until day one of election day. I don't know if the most arduous Donald Trump supporter would tell you that he had a good week, which means those that are not supporters of the president would tell you that this was an exceptionally horrible week for the president. In fact, something that I've continued to get is the idea, and and I, I did an emergency podcast on Tuesday about this, does this now feel like a landslide? We are again seeing national polls at the mid-teens for Biden when I first asked that question earlier in the summer. And my, 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 my conclusion was no. But I will re-ask that question in this episode. We also have a mailbag segment coming up for you, and it is an extra large one considering... We've had, uh, you know, a lot of pressing news to get to without getting into some of the, the, the bigger questions. And then an amazing interview. As we've watched these crazy situations unfold, oftentimes what I, I've watched people try to, to wrestle with is how we compare this to movies and television shows that we watch. Why do these narratives look like those narratives? And so... We brought on somebody who studies in a scholarly pursuit television. We will discuss all that a little bit later. But first! Five thirty-eight. Election update. Why women are defeating Donald Trump. Christianity Today. Speak truth to Trump. Evangelicals of all people should not be silent about Donald Trump's blatant immorality. The Atlantic. Donald Trump's disastrous debate. Politico magazine. America's therapists are worried about Trump's effect on your mental health. Politico, RNC halts Victory Project work on Trump. Eagle-eared listeners may or may not have been able to spot the game that I'm playing here, but those are not headlines from today. They are literally headlines from October 9th to October 12th from 2016. 
I, I just was curious. I wanted to take a look at what we were talking about. We had already done the second debate at that point. But I wanted to see where we were at. And the general idea of the media at that time was that Donald Trump had no chance, that he was uh, squandering the last opportunities he had to reshape the race. And there was plenty of evidence to demonstrate exactly why this was going to end in a fiery disaster. So as we look at what has happened over the last seven days for Donald Trump, remember, it was only one week in the parlance of the bare naked ladies since Donald Trump got COVID. Uh, in that in in that time, he he seemed to have a fairly presidential moment where he, he vlogged from the Walter Reed Hospital or Medical Center, rather. I don't want to get yelled at. He seemed to be a little bit more relatable and then has come out of the box as soon as he's gotten back to the White House and, and kind of been the, the divisive figure for which people have kind of made their decision on. The vice presidential debate happened. I, I tend to think that Pence did a good job there. I don't think that... Harris particularly won anybody new, but then again, the vice presidential debate doesn't matter. And then over the last 48 hours, we get just a bizarre hokey pokey of uh, you put the Democratic debate virtual, Donald Trump uh, takes the virtual debate out, the Biden campaign wants to move the debates, and then you shake them all about. We still don't know exactly what's going to happen, but here's what we know right now. The debate that was scheduled to happen in Miami almost certainly is not happening. Donald Trump, well, number one, the, the, the Commission on Presidential Debates decided it was going to be a virtual debate. I don't know how or why that decision is made. I would love a TikTok uh, uh, you know, and by that, I mean the style of news story, not the, uh, you know, dancing craze social media platform on exactly where and how the, the commission on presidential debates makes that decision. I, I would suspect it has to come from the Biden campaign's pressure that the Biden campaign doesn't want to come out and say, that we don't want to do a debate with Donald Trump when we believe he still has COVID. Trump is obviously going to press on to do this thing in person. And then the Commission on Presidential Debates says, okay, well, we'll be the bad guy here. But even then, I don't get that. To me, the Commission on Presidential Debates should not be making any unilateral decisions at all. They are basically just a peaceful escrow between between two warring tribes so we can have a a a once every four years moment where the two figureheads talk to each other. Like I, I really I don't get that. I, I actually can understand the Trump uh, uh, campaign being pissed off about the fact that they apparently didn't hear about this until after the debate. In fact, the first place that I heard about it was disgraced campaign gossip magnate Mark Halperin on Twitter saying that he had heard from two sources within the 
uh, a committee on presidential debates that they were going to make it a virtual thing. But the timing there is really what's interesting because if you say it after the Pence debate, then you've essentially taken away the other element of leverage that the Trump campaign could have. If you had told them it was going to be a virtual debate last week, they could have said, well, then, then this is just over. We don't agree with this. Now, whether or not you think that a virtual debate is the right idea, for which I can understand, the reality of the negotiations between two campaigns for these debates is that they are minuscule and every inch is fought over. Apparently, up until the 11th hour, both campaigns were fighting over exactly how many plexiglass uh, uh, barriers there was going to be during the vice presidential debate, how far they were going to be from each candidate. I mean, that's the level, the, the degree in which these things are fought over. For it to go from physical to virtual without any kind of prior negotiation between the two campaigns, I don't know. Uh, uh, whether or not it got to the right decision, I, I just find that a bit weird. But still, you're a campaign. The way that I measure good campaigns is not the best plans you have. It's how you respond to crises. It's why I I have always criticized the Hyde Biden strategy, not necessarily because I thought it was not a good plan. And indeed, Biden might win. And I might have to eat a gigantic bag of Hyde Biden crow. But the reason why I despise that is not because it's not a good plan. It's because it prevents your campaign from getting into the waters and and shaking things up. And sometimes things go wrong and you got to figure out how to deal with it. Sometimes things go right and you can take advantage of it. And yet here we are. The Trump campaign gets dealt a crisis. They don't want a virtual debate and one has been foisted upon them. In a classic case of ready, shoot, aim, Trump gets this news either right before or during a live call-in with the, 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 the former money honey, Maria Baratromo, on Fox Business and just out and out says, yeah, we're not doing it. I'm not doing a virtual debate. Then the campaign comes out and says, we want the debates moved. So we want to do the live town hall style debate, which was supposed to be the one in Miami. We want that on the 22nd. And then we want the 22nd debate to be on the 29th. So we're really pushing it to the limit here. The Biden campaign comes back and says, well, we want the town hall style debate because presumably that's the only debate format they're particularly uh, uh, jazzed to do because they like Joe Biden while he is engaging with people. Joe Biden is an empathetic guy. He, he, he gives good quivering lip politician 
they like that they like that idea. They like it a lot better than him just behind a podium. So they want to move that to the 22nd, the 15th debate, which is now not going to happen or going to be virtual. They want to move that to the 22nd. That doesn't look like it's going to happen. And so now the 22nd debate looks like it will happen live with both candidates, but the 15th debate will not. And Biden already is double booked because he uh, took him all but 30 minutes to book a live town hall. So they're going to get that town hall aesthetic on network television on ABC during that time slot on the 15th. We have yet to see what Donald Trump will do. I would presume maybe a rally. I mean, do you air a rally live on Fox? Do you do a town hall live on Fox? If there was ever a time where Donald Trump, the big media galaxy brain should get a cranking, it's now. Donald Trump should be able to create a television spectacle that would uh, uh, head-to-head outrate something that Joe Biden is doing. You know, you could always debate fellow presidential nominee Kanye West. Combine that with the lack of COVID relief. Combine that with the fact that he is recovering from COVID himself. The president is. And there are there is an emerging media narrative that he has become increasingly unhinged because he is quote unquote on steroids, which I don't really know if if that medically washes, but it is what it is. Combine that with now he has pulled out of an opportunity to speak to the entire nation. And again, I think this is what you qualify as a bad week. Is it a worse week than what he had in 2016? A a week in which his own party pulled out their financial support? A week in which he was destroyed in the press for saying that he would jail his opponent should he win where Hillary Clinton was running ahead nationally and in all the key swing states? Well, I don't know if it's worse. Let's look at what the now is by the numbers. Biden's national polls have been robust. Economist YouGov plus 9, Fox News plus 10, Reuters plus 12, CNBC plus 10, Rasmussen. Rasmussen, which had this race tied. Biden plus 12. And then CNN, that same poll that had him up 15 in the summer that made me ask, does this feel like a landslide, has him up. 16. Beefy. So, I'll ask myself again. Does this feel like a landslide? I gotta say, no. But it does feel like a loss for Trump. 
it feels like a Biden win. However, here is what my suspicion is. We hate each other way too much for this to be a blowout. Indeed, I think even the idea that this feels like it is running away from Trump is something that will motivate people that are not comfortable with Biden. And by that, I don't mean the genteel grandfatherly element of it. I mean these core, basic, motivating factors for which divide us. Here is a nutso-bo-butso set of numbers from Pew Research, specifically about what will be a defining issue when people go to the polls or have voted early or absentee, and that is the coronavirus. All right, we can all agree that's a major issue. So dig this. Among Democrats or lean Democrats who use only MSNBC, CNN, NPR, New York Times, or Washington Post to give them their information as major sources for political news. This is exactly how it's written. When asked the question, the U.S. has controlled the outbreak as much as it could have or the U.S. has not controlled the outbreak as much as it could have, those voters say 97% the U.S. has not controlled the outbreak as much as it could have. Among Republicans or lean Republicans who use Fox News or talk radio as their major sources for political news, they say 90% the U.S. has controlled the outbreak as much as it could have. And here's some more crazy numbers, also from Pew Research. Biden leads 69 to 27 among those who plan to vote by mail. Trump leads 63% to 31 among those who plan to vote on election day. Oh my God. I suspect the polls will tighten. I still suspect this will be a very close race because as much as we delight and rejoice and wax rhapsodic about every follicle of hair on the thoroughbreds we are judging in this horse race, the vast majority of Americans just kind of vote on the issues they believe in, and there are two very, very, very well-defined people that are representing those issues. So yes, today, on October 9th, it feels like the Trump show is something that America is tiring of. But I don't know if it has any bearing of what's going to happen on Election Day. I still think this is going to be extraordinarily tight. This just in, apparently tonight, Donald Trump will undergo a live medical examination on Fox News. That's the end of the segment. 
They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. You can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We begin with Matt. Apparently, Trump is getting a health check on TV tonight. Literally, this just came in. I, I added that to the, to the thing, and, and somebody already emailed me about it. Is it strange to think about uh, you showing up to a convention in a Charmander suit wouldn't even crack the top 500 of surreal and weird things that have happened in this election? I genuinely think that this is odder than 2016. Uh, uh, it is a, a true sequel, right? It is the same formula, but highlighted and made more intense. Sean writes, more Jennifer Briney, please. She had me at COVID-related dingleberries in describing add-on provisions for continuing resolutions. The metaphor is positively Brushwoodian in how off the wall it is, yet still apt in building understanding. Here is another Briney email. I quite enjoyed Wednesday's episode, including the Jen Briney interview. I was initially somewhat taken aback in what I perceived to be evident liberal bias when she started off by saying that the GOP literally only cares about the investor class. And though I'm still pretty sure that she's got liberal policy preferences, I was definitely impressed by her level of understanding of some of the nonsense that goes on behind the scenes in Congress. And I appreciated that she was willing to rip on Pelosi's grandstanding at the expense of getting anything useful done. The investor class stuff, though. What does she mean by that? I have a 401k and an investment account. Does that make me part of the investor class? Is it bad for politicians to do things that benefit the stock market? I understand the stock market isn't the whole of the economy, but it's not a completely worthless measure. I don't know. I would just be really interested to hear more from her on why she specifically thinks Congress is wholly beholden to the investor class and if she thinks I'm a bad person for having investments. Seemed like an oddly democratic socialist-esque capital versus people framing. Matt, thank you so much for writing in. This seems like a great topic of conversation to have once the election's wrapped up and we could talk about more general stuff. But I would presume that you should listen to Congressional Dish and and ask her because, uh, I, I don't know, I could guess. Ah, screw it. It's my podcast. I'll guess. I, I think that the idea there isn't that you're a bad person for having a 401k or stocks. It's that those companies that rise and fall on the stock market's fortunes are also big lobbyists. And so it's not that you are bad for participating. It's bad. It's that the way that money flows in DC is going to be tied to these companies, if that makes sense. But I don't know. Briny could have a whole nother thing, and she likely does because she knows a lot more about Congress than I do. That's just my guess. Steven writes, I'm new to politics. I was wondering why Joe Biden didn't pick Barack Obama as his vice president. Is there a legal or strategic reason? Just curious to learn as much as I can. Steven. Uh, yeah, there is, there is a, a reason. So number one, uh, once you're president, you, you really don't go back, but also you want a vice president that could take over as president and Barack Obama cannot take over as president since he's already been president for two terms. And that's the limit. Once you've punched that subway club card twice, 
you done. Mitchell writes, I understand that the president getting diagnosed with the virus he belittled is a major story and it's dominating the media cycle, but I'm pretty surprised this hasn't gotten any attention in American news. And he sends me a USCIS.gov policy update. It says policy alert, inadmissibility based on membership to a totalitarian party, October 2nd, 2020. It goes on to say, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services is issuing policy guidelines to the policy manual to address inadmissibility based on membership or affiliation with the communist or any other totalitarian party. Mitchell goes on. Essentially, there's now a travel ban against uh, people who are registered members who have uh, affiliated with a communist political party. Is it just me or should this be a bigger deal? I've looked around and been surprised with how minimal the news coverage is. There are 100 million Chinese citizens that are actively registered with the Chinese Communist Party, and the fact that this rule applies to general members and not just political leaders or politicians seems crazy. Can't imagine uh, if an Asian country said anyone belonging to the Democrat-slash-Republican Party isn't allowed to enter our country. Love the show. So, Mitchell, uh, obviously immigration is not my... uh, not my forte. I would have to bring in somebody else. But if anybody is listening and knows what the hell this means, please go ahead and send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Captain Bunzo writes in, First of all, Raise the Dead Season 2 is fantastic. Everyone should listen. I agree. New episode this Sunday. And to be honest with you, this was going to be the episode that... I was going to make the entire second season. Uh, It is my grand unifying thesis that counterintuitively Bernie Sanders and Barry Goldwater are very similar politicians. Not in what they believe in. That's almost diametrically opposite. But their fight against an entrenched party structure is something that I think is very, very, very close. And how the Republican Party tried to kill Goldwater's campaign is very similar to me to how Bernie Sanders' campaign actually died. But that'll be on Sunday. Captain Bunzo continues. I was thinking tonight that something we haven't heard about for a while is Haida Biden. A few months back, or maybe it was last week, pandemic time, you were saying that Biden's strategy of letting Trump's incompetence effectively be his election strategy was going to backfire. Well, I think we might be seeing a resurgence of that as a successful strategy. We haven't heard much about Biden this week, except that he's negative for COVID. However, the incompetence of the Trump administration is in such overdrive that it doesn't seem like Biden needs to actually do much to win this election. Just stay the course and let the Trump administration run itself into the ground. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the, the the Trump campaign arguably looked like more of a dumpster fire in 2016 than it does now. So, again, if the past is prologue, then I, I don't know how confident people should be in that strategy. The numbers certainly look rosier, but I don't know. I will say that Joe Biden is out there. Joe Biden took advantage of the fact that Donald Trump was was laid up and was still out there campaigning. 
I do think he is getting his, his, his perspective out there. Now, I got to say this, and I'll freelance a little bit away from your question, Mike Pence style, and say, I'm not really wild about the, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you about what I'm going to do with the Supreme Court until after the election. And I'm, I'm furthermore befuddled by people applauding that as a strategy. Well, no, 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 sorry. Applauding that, period. I get applauding it as a strategy, but it shows you how much we have this culture of like unpaid surrogates when we're like, yeah, don't say anything. Message discipline. That's great. But when Joe Biden comes out yesterday and says, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I think about the Supreme Court because then that'll be a headline. It's like, yeah, because people want to know whether or not you are going to expand the Supreme Court, whether or not you're going to end the filibuster, whether or not you want to expand the Senate. Like, these are important things. And by the way, let me just say this from a press perspective. If he's not made to answer that now, he'll never answer anything in the White House. This is when you're supposed to be open. This is when you're supposed to be talking to people. I think we might go a full term without a press conference from a President Biden. Scale writes, since we don't want to ignore the science and medical experts, how about cbdeclaration.org, the scientists and medical experts? That link brings you to the Great Barrington Declaration. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focus protection. Long story short, if you don't want to read the, the, the whole thing, they say that uh, effectively we need to lock down the old people. We need to lock down those that are immunocompromised. We need to highly focus our testing on and uh, uh, medical resources on them and the rest of the economy needs to go on. Life needs to go on because we are, are experiencing unintended consequences from large scale shutdowns. Uh, my, my perspective on this is largely, it's something that I've been saying from the very beginning is that I, I hate the fact that there is a dichotomy on this. And I do think that there is room for diversity of thought on exactly how we want to create a, a new normal. I, I don't think as we see continuing uh, waves of this lap upon the shores of countries that took it seriously or not seriously, that this is something that could easily be snuffed out. I think in America, it's very, very, very hard considering the fact that we cannot seal off the borders between states, let alone cities. Uh, and it's hard It's hard to trace. We're a very big, very mobile country. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's fine that there's people out there saying this. If you believe it, sign the declaration. Uh, I just really would like consistency from our government on this. You know, uh, uh, in, in the Bay Area, I think today, I believe today is the first time that if I wanted to make a reservation at my gym, I could go work out for 20 minutes. And and again, it's it's not that I think that that's good or bad. It's that I have no idea how we got here when we passed a mile marker. Like, the only thing I've ever asked for with this 
is just let's just know what our gauges are. Let's know when we're getting there. Let's 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 try to figure out as best we can how we're getting there. Instead, it just sort of appears to be this arbitrary. Uh, uh, no, now you can do this, and now you can do this, and now we're shutting this down, and now we're taking this away. It just. I pay a lot of attention to this, and I don't get it, which means that there's a lot of people for whom it just appears to be total chaos. And finally, Stephen writes, in the PX3 Extra for October 1st, you said that Biden doesn't support the Green New Deal as part of his agenda, but according to his website, he does. JoeBiden.com slash climate plan, quote, Biden believes the Green New Deal is a crucial framework for meeting the climate change uh, challenges we face. It, po it powerfully captures two basic truths, which are at the core of his plan. The United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on an epic scale to meet the scope of this challenge. And two, our environment and economy are completely and totally connected. So this is a semantics thing, and it's something that uh, the vice presidential uh, candidates went back and forth on. Thursday, and that is, no, he doesn't support the Green New Deal. He supports his own plan that, by his own words, is inspired by the Green New Deal. Politics! If you want to write in to this show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. I think I see a wild Andrew Heaton crossing the street. Let's see if it's him. It was! It was Andrew Heaton! Hello! He's here in Oakland! I'm here in Oakland, yeah! You're live! I, I've, I've driven to Oakland, and, and uh, may, we'll elaborate on why and all of that later, but in the meantime, uh, I purchased a 13-foot fiberglass. All right. Floor. One of the big secrets has been revealed if you are already a part of the $3 Club. You heard it happen live. That is Andrew Heaton. Not only is he going to be a part of this show until we get uh, uh, to the election, but I convinced the man to drive across the country. He's in the Bay Area. We're going to be doing live stuff. It'll be it'll be awesome. Uh, I'm whenever I do these surveys of the guests that you guys like the best. Heaton is always up there, and the fact that I was able to get him to overturn his life to come on out here, thanks in part to the money we were able to, to use to grease the wheels from you guys, man, it just means the world to me. I think we are going to uh, uh, just have that much more diversity of thought, that much more uh, humor. I mean, Heaton is one of the most talented writers I've I've ever uh, seen and and heard and I'm just over the moon. So thank you guys, thank you Three Dollar Club for making this happen. Thank you to everybody who has gone to TakePoliticsSeriously.com for making this happen. Uh, you will reap the rewards. I've said it once. I'll say it a thousand times. I have three more Wednesdays until Election Day. That's when we charge for the show. Even my Florida public school education knows that three weeks times $3 is nine bucks. Nine bucks. That's all it takes to make sure that you get 
not just the two bonus podcasts for the $3 club, but also we're doing emergency podcasts now whenever they need to happen. I'm trying to fill up that empty, that empty slot on the calendar, that Tuesday that normally uh, is when I don't do stuff, but I'm doing stuff now on Tuesdays because I want you guys to never be without the perspective that I think is unique to PX3. Join the team. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Only nine bucks to get four podcasts a week guaranteed until the election. Our guest today is Miles McNutt, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Theater Arts at Old Dominion University. He's going to talk to us all about why we look at television narratives and assign them to our very chaotic political world. If you want more, you can find it on Twitter at Memels. That is M-E-M-L-E-S. But let's go ahead and welcome to the show first. Welcome to the show, Miles. Thank you for having me. One of the things that has come up a lot over the last few uh, well, days, really, but intensifying over the past few weeks and months is this rapid news cycle has been compared a lot to fictional writing. And and you hear this a lot often when it's a, you know, if, if they would have turned it in as a Hollywood script, it would have been rejected because it was too crazy and too, uh, uh, the, the story changed direction so many times. This is your area of, of, of expertise. Why do we keep going to these kinds of comparisons? And is there anything to draw from them? I mean, there's so many reasons. I think it's actually interesting. We were about to talk about this. And just last night, James Mangold, who's a writer and director, uh, posted a whole thread where he sort of narrativized the whole situation <laughs> as like a pitch. And I also saw a tweet talking about how people watched the first season of 24 you know, 19 years ago and said that could never in the, happen in the White House. That's so sensational. And then yeah. they're like, what about today? I think it's interesting, just like the proliferation of this. I think there's a lot of factors. I think for the most part, though, is this idea of the sheer overwhelming amount of information that's so much about sort of screenwriting or about TV writing in particular, which I'm often seeing because I'm a TV scholar directly, is the idea that sort of in a writer's room, you're pitching ideas and you're sort of like, well, how do we how do we stretch this out? How do we, you know, make it fit into a season? And by all accounts, what's happening right now is every idea you could possibly have is being crammed in and being experienced all at once. And like a lot of TV writers have said, if I pitch this stuff in the room, I'd be laughed out of it. Right. And yeah. basically be sort of pretty much lost. And I feel like that sort of response is making people think about the sort of fictionalized world where everything is on the table, whereas in reality, it seems more is on the table in reality than in the context of a fictional world where there's actually much more control over that story. So let's actually talk about this just so we can understand the metaphor a little bit better. But in terms of the creation of television, this is basically just as a fan of the medium, I understand it, uh, and I'm sure you can explain it a lot more clearly and uh, fuller. Uh, you've got your basic arcs. So you want to say that your, your main character who starts off uh, uh, picking up a football for the first time is going to win the state championship at the end of the season. So you know the basic structure of where you go. And then the art of breaking the season is figuring out when he's going to get his job at the, at the convenience store, when he's going to lose it, when he's going to meet the girl, when he's going to lose the girl, when he's going to get the girl back. 
and and so it's it's creating those complications in the middle of of, of the big things. Is is that about where what what it is in in its simplest I mean, form? Yeah, every show would function a little bit differently. Yes, you've got long scale arcs you need to get from point A to point B, but obviously there needs to be complications, uh, cliffhangers, different details that need to come within that process. And I think in that way, part's part of the reason why we think of election cycles in a similar way, because they have clear beginnings and endings. An election cycle begins, an election cycle ends. We're going from milestone to milestone in that process. And so it's like, how much can you cram into there? How much can you sort of spread out in that space? And I think the reality is that reality is cramming so much in every day, every hour. It feels like it just kind of keeps moving. And that very much goes against the sort of impulses of stretching things out, letting stories sort of breathe, let things play through. It's sort of like, it's, I always think of this as a very specific reference, but I swear it makes a lot of sense. But uh, <laughs> the first season of The O.C., uh, so the Fox teen drama yes, series. Yes, yes. That show ran for 24 episodes in that season, and they basically told every story you could imagine because, frankly, Josh Schwartz, who created the show, had no idea how to make TV yet. So they just burned all this story yeah. and realized at the end of the first season they had told so many of the stories they could possibly tell within that universe, and then they had to like completely go back to the drawing board. I feel like this is the like horror story version of that in terms <laughs> of everything that's going on and everything that's happening. Um, so... I often think when when we go to metaphors like this, that part of it is also trauma. That we are we are seeing something that, even if we're not going to say that we're all traumatized by it, we are all focusing on it, right? And that's why you see this with tragedies. You see this with nine eleven or the Oklahoma City bombing or the or, or or the Boston Marathon bombing, for example. That there are. These moments that, all right, the world, at least the nation's attention, that all probably watch the same kinds of movies and kinds of television shows are are on this one thing. And if there's one way that we can all even talk to each other about it in a way that that makes it make sense as pattern recognizing creatures, it is this popular culture. Do you think that's part of it? I think so. On the one hand, we can talk sort of first of the structure of it feels very sort of media like and then we're through, but it's also like I could say how we experience it. And I think it's something I've been thinking about. So in the context of TV studies, we have this idea called flow. Uh, Raymond Williams talked about this principle that when you watch TV, it flows over you. It goes from program to commercial to another program. You could just sit there and it's just going to keep happening in front of you. The TV is specific that way. It doesn't begin and end. It just kind of keeps moving. And I think that initially social media didn't take on that effect. You checked in when you wanted to. But given the state of the current news cycle, if I'm sort of, we call, what we call it doom scrolling, a kind of yes. common term for thinking yes. about how we go through social media. Like, and, 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 sit- and, and re- re- real quick for, for folks who are not as plugged in, doom scrolling is, is the colloquial way of saying that once you've definitely seen what you are probably likely to see and take from a dip into social media is when you just continue to do those extra 15 flicks of the thumb so you could just see literally whatever else, which often leads to bad news. Right, and then you go back to the top of your feed and there's new Doom that's yes. now been added to the feed. <laughs> because you've taken so long to Doom scroll, there's right. now more Doom, yeah. 
But I think that that experience does have this idea of like, you can sit on Twitter and experience this in real time, like you're watching cable news or like you're watching a TV show because the news is happening so fast. People are posting about it so much more. Uh, the retweets, like unless you've retweets turned off, like everybody's sharing the same stories from the same blue check accounts moving through. I think the way we're experiencing that now is like we're watching it live, despite the fact we're not actually watching TV. And so I think the mediated nature of it through social media is so much more intense now that I do think it feels more like we're watching a mediated text than if it would have been, say, 19 years ago when we're talking about 9-11, where we had to tune into a TV to get that experience. I think social media is now replicating a version of that, making it easier for us to perceive it through that lens of a story being told rather than necessarily just as discrete posts being made by individuals. But let me ask you this, because television and social media are kind of diametric opposites in that television is, when it's at its best or most iconic, polished to a shine, whereas social media, by its very nature, is chaos. So why are we seeing the same patterns in, in mediums that are so diametrically opposed? I mean, so I can say this personally, which is like my feed is primarily people who talk about TV and write TV and make TV, meaning gotcha. that they're inherently functioning that way, right? Yes. For other people, it might not function the same way. Again, every feed is distinct, but every feed is distinct, but it's also a feed that we chose, right? And so I think about TV, yes, so live TV is something we tune into and move from, but increasingly we think about media through our lens of choice, right? We go to Netflix, we choose what to watch. We create our own flow as we think about. Uh, we go to YouTube and choose the videos we watch and have a feed, the algorithm gives us what we wanna see. And so I think if social media, on the one hand, you're right, it's not as polished, but we chose it, we built it. It's our narrative in a way of how we choose to see an issue, meaning that when we tune back in, I think we have an idea of what the expectations are, who these people are, have that relationship to them that does mirror, say, how we connect to TV newscasters, right? The people we follow on Twitter are similarly voices that we've chosen to trust and bring in. I think the elements of that all bleed together. The fictionalized part of it, I think, comes from, in part, the content itself being so sensational and how people work through it. But I think it really depends on the, the feeds we've built, I think, would depend on how much we view it through that lens. All right, here's a meta question for you. How much in how we understand this story, and if we are processing this as a fictionalized narrative, are the social media accounts we follow the characters and the White House melodrama the thing, the animating incident that that makes all this interesting? Or are we following the White House drama in a in a West Wing kind of way where, where we are seeing what we imagine to be the inside out? I think it really depends on obviously the feature you built and move through, but I think you take an example like Claudia Conway, right? Is a perfect case study of how yeah. the internet has taken this sort of character and wanting to imagine a version of her in terms of what she's doing, basically making a reality show out of her life. Yeah, this, 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 this is, this is the, the, the daughter of Kellyanne Conway, the former uh, uh, spokesperson for the Trump administration that uh, has uh, now made both of her parents quit both their, their, their diametrically opposed sides of the aisle and uh, continues to uh, to kind of uh, uh, create chaos, but go ahead. And, and she's using TikTok and she's using these platforms to communicate directly to people. And it's creating all this sort of, again, it's chaos on various levels. But the thing about that is sort of, we don't actually know that much about that person. We're following them without a clear sense of what's going on. And like, for me, I don't follow really anybody involved directly in this scandal. For me, I'm relying on the people on my feed to kind of curate that information. But in terms of journalism, someone like Daniel Dale, 
right? The sort of fact checker who's constantly kind of going through what's going on with the Trump administration, different figures who have sort of taken on these roles. I think of it as sort of a case study of so much of like what people think about this is like they start fantasy casting a fictional version of this. Yeah. Right. And I think to a certain extent, obviously, that means all the people involved, the politicians and how this plays out, who's going to play them. Right. How that plays out. The doctors, everybody was casting Ken Marino. <laughs> um, as commonly the kind of main one. So like you get these case studies where that starts to happen, but I think it's also the issue of like who on our feed, the people commenting on this, yeah. right? Who are going to be the resistance figures who have their own role to play in that process, who kind of elevate themselves moving through. I think we want those everyday heroes. I think we want to believe to a certain degree, maybe this is our vanity, but like we want to believe we're a part of this story, that yeah. our retweet, that our sort of efforts to fight this in whatever role we want to play and whatever side of the aisle we might sit on, that we are sort of part of that story. Like what are, if we're participating in the narrative, which inherently we are by posting on social media, inevitably we sort of want to believe, I think, that everybody is a part of that story. Because if not, what are we doing? I guess that is another element that that really does kind of de uh, deserve further uh, interrogation that if this is a show and we are watching a show or something that feels in that taps into our brains the same area that is lit up whenever we watch a good fictional or terrifying fictional television show that the idea that we can retweet and the idea that we could then see one of the characters like our tweet or like our reply is really reaching through the television and becoming a part of the narrative in a way that, that we've never really seen before. And I mean, obviously there's elements of this kind of playing through in terms of fictional narratives, like live tweeting, they want us to be engaged, but that's just free advertising, right? They want yeah. us to live tweet yeah. when we watch a TV show so that people know we're watching it and they maybe tune in. But obviously like reality TV are voting for American Idol, right? That's all about taking something we're watching and making us feel like we're in control making us feel like we're part of that process. And obviously James Punny Wozniak has written about, you know, Donald Trump as a reality TV show president, right? And very much about yeah. the frameworks. So that's all 100% true. But again, the idea that A, that, you know, this is now stranger than fiction going beyond kind of what reality TV is to something even deeper and more complex and difficult to follow. But I think it's the, bl the blurring of those lines, right? The blending of those kind of principles mean on the one hand, I think we want to think that we're a part of this, that we can influence it, that we can make a difference. But I think it's also just the idea that we start like, let's face it, we don't all post on social media really earnest posts about our political beliefs. We no. dunk on tweets. We yeah. make fun of them. We try to make jokes. We try to go viral. Uh, we try to sort of make those sort of like impulses to spread those messages and move from there. And all those different approaches mean that there is an element of us following a narrative that we are maybe thinking, well, we can participate in this by doing this or making this Photoshop or posting this image of Donald Trump yelling at the kid mowing the lawn with a new meme based on what's happening at a given moment in a given time, hoping to continue the narrative and the discourse, reminding us that internet culture has taken so many pieces of this and turned them into their own mini narratives outside of what CNN might be posting that nonetheless give us more power and more contribution. One of the things that has continued to go through with uh, social media is understanding, as you mentioned, how adversarial it is, that there's very, very little, uh, hey, let me just understand what's going on, right? It's it's by and large, this is terrible, you are awful, look at this awful person, uh, please join me in our tribe as we stone the witch. Uh, is that something that is necessary for 
a television series that, I mean, do you need a bad guy or has that been a trope for which uh, television has been based on for, for decades? I mean, I think you definitely, obviously conflict is necessary, right? Like yeah. whether it needs to be good guys and bad guys, obviously, depending on how you define those terms, the good guys have disagreements, the bad guys have disagreements, right? Different sides, kind of different perspectives. I think what I would say in that context is that right now there is such a clear sort of sense of motivation of what's at stake. And I think stakes is sort of where this sort of sits in a lot of circumstances in terms of the idea of how this matters and how this plays out. That for all of the sort of moments that you might have people kind of going for comedy, like going for a way to just kind of keep this light and keep this kind of moving along. I mean, you've got other people who are just like, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. Our lives depend on this. Remember about children in cages. Remember these kind of circumstances. That there's so much sort of back and forth on those topics that the more important it feels, the more that kind of resonates. People are going to approach it in different ways, but everybody agrees on its importance. And I feel like that's one thing where like nobody participating in this discourse, I feel at this point is sort of like, eh, you know, I don't really, I'm not really invested in that on that level. If you're on social media right now, and unless you've muted every possible word that could bring up, you know, politics, or you've unfriended every person who ever posts about these things, this is a significant part of your life online. And if you've bought into that, I feel like there's sort of, it's sort of, again, like everybody's watching, right? Yeah. Like we think about TV now as being so much more fragmented, where like everybody has so many different platforms, so many things to watch. Nobody's, no, there's no show drawing like mash finale numbers of like a hundred some million people to make this happen right now there are hundreds of millions of people who are kind of tuned into this to different degrees which i does do feel kind of makes that connection a little different all right look you you set me up for this so i know that some of my listeners are going to roll their eyes because i have i have asked scholars and various different experts this theory so i'm going to ask you now one of my grand unifying theories as to why politics feels different in terms of how we react to it is I believe that past the 90s, we very much had our monoculture shattered. As you mentioned before, there is no more, well, it's reasonable to assume that Greg at the water cooler watched Friends last night or watched Seinfeld last night because everybody watches Friends or Seinfeld Uh The only thing that has continued to maintain monoculture status, if not intensified, is politics. Because everybody does have to pay attention to politics on a level that even live things like sports have fragmented as more uh, availability for different kinds of options have, 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 have popped up. Do you think that this is, that, that it is the, the receding of music, movies, and television uh, that has helped buttress the idea that this is, that politics is the common thread in our modern culture? I think it's interesting. I think that for a moment, sort of in this context, uh, before things I think went fully to pot, uh, what you saw was that politics was, was so divisive and so sort of difficult that on the one hand, everybody might be paying attention to it, but they're so diametrically opposed in how they do it. And like, that's not consistent with other forms of pop culture, monoculture, that when everybody was watching the MASH finale, it's not like half of the people loved it and half the people hated it right? No. It's not like you had different points of view. And so I think if we're talking about it as a form of monoculture, it is this notion that it affects everybody in a way that pop culture doesn't anymore. Really, the yeah. Super Bowl is the only remaining sort of piece of this, which used to be apolitical, but apparently not anymore, uh, according to uh, at least one side. And so how that plays out, I feel like you're right that everybody's connecting to it. But I also feel that unlike some of those other pieces of culture, I think there is also this 
there's a group of people who are like, politics is too chaotic. It's too diametrically opposed. I don't want to deal with it. And sort of like, I want to step away from it. And I'll admit, like, there have been moments where I've been really tempted where I'm just like, you know, I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm not allowed to vote in US elections, uh, <laughs> which means as a result, I'm kind of like, I feel like I don't have as much power as I might want. And so I'm like, maybe I just mute all these words, right? Mute yeah. Trump, Biden, like get everything out of my feed and get it back to where it was five years ago, where I felt like I could go on it and not be doom scrolling and not be overwhelmed by this. And I feel like there's an element of that playing out, but I think there's also the discourse is so much, this is so important. And I think that's where with politics, I would hope it would be a monoculture. I would hope that it would be something that everybody would invest in and care about and find their position with. Yeah. And yet you'll hear about the notion of undecided voters in an era of just immense information. And I would argue clarity about what the sides are arguing. You still hear about people who might not vote if they see the polls. And it's just like, who is that person that's not paying enough attention to understand all these questions? And you realize that while you might say that it's monocultural in the sense that people are paying attention, until we see the turnout rate of, you know, of likely voters and possible voters, uh, it's hard for me to say that that monocultural impact that it might be having in our lives will be echoed by a sort of monocultural sort of action on the part of those individuals. But if we are going to look at actions, it is monoculture-like in terms of its media saturation. It has reached into yeah. every element and... and you know, in, in the same way that, that maybe in a bygone era, a, an athlete might have screamed dynamite when they, they dunked the basketball. Like now we see a, a, a Black Lives Matter tribute or a, a vote, you know, element that is like saturated throughout uh, every element of, of our culture. So, yes, maybe we see a lower or higher voting turnout. But in terms of what the 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 what we have as gatekeepers, media gatekeepers, either spread out and diverse as we do on social media or in whatever old guard institutions we have, they have decided that it is all in on politics. Like the news channels now, unless there's a major disaster is wall-to-wall politics. The the number yeah. one news stories in, in newspapers are, are politics. So in, in terms of at least how we're thinking about it, it, it does seem like it is something that is, is, is a dominant monoculture. I think what you're sort of addressing there is sort of the notion of sort of the saturation factor, which I think is very real. But I think it's a question, too, of just like how much is that about how we've changed how we define politics? Right. Like one could argue that Black Lives Matter is certainly political and that it's been rendered political moving through. But the notion of equality need not be political if not had been. Sure, sure, sure. Let me 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 pull back on that. Black Lives Matter is 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 less of a thing than than the getting the vote track. But but to point to that, though, I think what you're speaking to is the idea that as politics has permeated all of these different areas, as things have been defined as political like sports, for example, in Milwaukee, they canceled a sort of like early voting event. Uh, at Miller Park where the Brewers play because basically Republicans are threatened to sue because they would argue that any sort of branding of the sports team would make it electioneering for Democrats because of how sports have been apparently politicized by nature of Black Lives Matter protests in these circumstances. Yeah. And so I do think that there's this notion that as things sort of spread out and become more political, we define things by political terms, everything can be made that way, that permeation does make it so like, how could you escape it, right? To your point, yeah. right? If we think of this as a narrative that we're experiencing, maybe part of why we wanna make it a story that's happening is so we wanna to try to understand how is this everywhere? How is it like everybody's, you know, every comedian's Twitter feed has turned into politics and you see people, why can't we keep politics out of it? And their argument is because we can't keep politics out of anything right now. Yeah. The story is bigger than us. The story plays out. 
I think as that happens, I think our reaction to that might be, this is just general speculation, to sort of be like, well, why is this happening? What is an explanation for the fact that no part of my life that I used to be able to enjoy independent of this, it's part of it. As someone who believes in the importance of politics and the importance of involvement, I'm totally content for everything I have to be permeated by that. Even if there are things I would like to have as an escape, I'll take it. But I think for other people, they might resist that and want to try to understand it. And the idea that sort of it's taken on a life of its own, that it's become bigger than just a political process and become the sort of narrativization might be a way they can accomplish that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm with you there because I've always cared about politics for, you know, more than more than people around me. Uh, and normally three and a half uh, years out of four, nobody gives a rat's ass about my opinion. And that has not been the case over the past three and a half years. That's the one thing I, I would say about now is now is when we're supposed to get our yayas out. Like, you know, in, in the last, you know, three months before an election, that's when you're supposed to yell and scream at your neighbor about how they're stupid and, and how you're right and how you go out and vote. And then usually there's an election and then everybody buys Christmas presents for each other and we kind of move on for you know maybe until the midterms. Or if you're a super nerd like me, you keep paying attention. That is not the case now. And to get back to television, how much of this is like, let's in television heightening dramatization is crucial you said conflicts are key and making sure that we feel every inch of those conflicts is uh really the art of the storytelling every high school breakup has to feel like the the high school breakup that you had when it did mean that the world was absolutely ending and you wanted the earth to swallow you up has some of that heightening and dramatization made its way here into a political realm where Things are more complicated. It's not as it, it, it's not the same as as a, a, a very simple good guy bad guy dynamic. I think I mean obviously ever since 2016, each subsequent election, whether it's like so I'm in Virginia and like we're on a 17, 19, 21 cycle in terms of every two years, so we've yeah. been kind of off year cycles. So in Virginia, I've been getting those. Then you have the midterms in 2018. At each of those intervals, it felt like it picked up again, right? That the yeah. narrative picked up, that kind of things escalated, the kind of nature of the threat, nature of circumstance all kind of moved through. When that happens every year like that, that is like a TV season, right? You kind of, yeah. you finish, you get to a finale, things calm down a little bit, but then everything ramps up as it keeps moving. And I guess the question that people are sort of, every TV show runs into this, where it runs for a while and it keeps playing out and it goes through the patterns and you're enjoying it, but then you're like, oh, it's kind of doing the same thing again. I'm kind of tired of this. I'm looking for a change. How can they keep creating new conflicts? It's kind of inherently contrived where it's like, oh, well now we need these characters, characters to die or we need something yeah. to happen. Like the walking dead is still going after 10 seasons. <laughs> it's just like, they can just keep throwing zombies at them. But it's like, how long can we keep seeing the same? Uh, we're losing our humanity fighting these non-human. Anyway, yeah. the notion being that as that keeps happening, I do think we're seeing a case where like fatigue sets in, right? Where like there are people on my Twitter feed who have been constantly retweeting news for years now. And I always wondered like, when would they sort of become tired of this? When would they break down? When would they lose their will? And I feel like if anything, it's just intensified in the past couple months and like we'd expected an election cycle, but after three years of just outright kind of consistency, I do think that there's a sense that like we're reaching a breaking point of that narrative and that a lot of the motivation, particularly obviously from the Democrat side, is to not have it be this way anymore, is to end this story, is to reach a series finale, is to feel like they can sort of end the narrative and move on to what will 
be a reboot or a spinoff or whatever needs to happen. But the idea that you need this particular version of this to end because the story has run out of gas in their perspective. I, 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 I can't help but think, and I've, I have said this before, I mean, and you know, fingers crossed, but this can't continue at this escalation pace because either Biden's going to win and we're going to have inherently more of a boring presidency, if even just because of message discipline, because that'll be a thing that Biden practices, uh, whereas Trump believes that uh, the only way he is going to get his own words out is by screaming them. And or Trump wins, at which point he's going to be less powerful than he was in his first term, because that's just the way that presidencies work. The lame duck term is less powerful than the first term. And maybe there is some kind of turning in terms of our understanding with that. But either way, I I hope that this is that this is the 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 top of the peak of the the uh, uh, hysteria. But also, I thought that. At some point, we would take off, you know, we would at least get a little nap in before we got into to, to this cycle about a year ago, and mm. that certainly didn't happen. I think I think the way to think about this in context is, so one of the things that Game of Thrones quite famously did was that its big events, character deaths, major battles took place in the ninth episode of the season instead of the tenth in yeah. the season finale. The, wi- the Wire but, did that great as well. Yeah. So basically you had this like your big climax came before and then you had a denouement that came after, right? Basically at this point, we're reaching the climax, right? The climax would be November 3rd. The question is what happens between then and January? And obviously the result of November 3rd will determine that. But everything that happens in between, we'll figure out how are we transitioning? Like what is our sort of next moment? And I think the problem in this case is that as much as we're looking for that catharsis of election day to end this, a, the chance of it ending on election night, right? It's probably going to be one of those like episodes where you think it's going to be like the big moment, but it actually gets delayed by an episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then it's sort of like, then it's like, well, what happens after that? What's the next step? Will there be another season? How does this play out? And again, the uncertainty of all of that with TV, it, that's the thrill of it, right? We're looking for, you know, a sense we don't want to know what's coming up. We want to have sort of a feeling that we could be surprised or otherwise move through. Um, I'm done with surprises in terms of real life right now. I would like some certainty and like you say, some security, some uh, boring. I will take boring all day. And yet that's very much the opposite. We turn, I think we want it to not be a TV show anymore. We want it to be something that we're not constantly paying attention to. Final question. How much of this, because I have gotten frustrated with how much we have treated all news almost equally. Uh, we have treated stories that I thought were thin or stupid in the same way that we would treat uh, stories that are well-sourced and have actual factual kind of uh, basis to it. Is this being dramatically heightened and who is heightening it? The people that are the gatekeepers that are publishing the stories or is it us almost more scarily? Is it, is it our own desire to have the next uh, uh, dopamine burst that we're elevating these non-stories into massive stories just to continue the cataclysm. I mean, it's a it's a vicious circle, right? Basically, you have publishers. Yes, people are pushing stories that they know will get clicks, 
and sell. I mean, digital advertising is a mess right now, right? And for all the reasons why everything's a mess, they're looking to kind of capture people's attention and they're fundamentally taking advantage of the fervency around this, both from the left and the right in terms yeah. of what people are willing to share and kind of move through and kind of fostering all of that. And then I, I read stories like that sometimes and I'm like, okay, that's not really the same thing. We don't have as much to go with on that. That yeah. seems kind of specious. We're kind of moving through. But I see people sharing it because they don't know what else to do, right? Legitimately, like they don't know what else to do except for share things that make them feel better, share things that make them feel like they're doing something, share things that help them rationalize how they're feeling or how other people are feeling or that they feel like they're making a difference. And then when that when they share that, then then repeats the cycle back to publishers and kind of moves its way through. And I think, again, it's like, regardless of what happens, like our version of this after the fact, I think we do have to reckon with what is our role in this? Not to say that we are inherently spreading misinformation, although people obviously are. Um, not to say that people want to be doing that or know that they're doing that, but whether it's QAnon or something else, that those kind of circumstances are built around people being taken advantage of by systems, by algorithms, by these kind of cases that then we need to understand what that looks like from a media literacy perspective. But I think the reality is that trying to make a lit media literacy argument in our current climate is nearly impossible because we're so distracted and so overwhelmed and there's so much going on. My hope is that in the following cycle, which will not be a four year hellscape, hopefully, um, that in that <laughs> environment, we might have space to have those conversations with our loved ones, to have those conversations with people that we've seen sharing more indiscriminately than others to try to see if we can't sort of uh, guess, get out of the spiral that we're trapped in in that respect. Here's hoping. And here's hoping with Miles McNutt, an assistant professor in uh, the Department of Communications and Theater Arts at Old Dominion University. Please find him on Twitter at Memels. That is M-E-M-L-E-S. Miles, thank you so much for joining us. That's a great conversation. Thank you. And that'll, that'll, that'll wrap it up for today. There we go. Come on. Let, let, I'm leaving that in. We're, we're finishing this on a, on a, on a sloppy note. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody who supports this program by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Uh, uh, one of the most epic surges in support that this show has ever seen. Certainly the biggest that we saw since the uh, primary season. I greatly, greatly Thank you guys for doing that. It was only, I think, a week and a half ago we were talking about crossing the 1100 mark, and now we are within 20 supporters of crossing the 1200 mark. Guys, overwhelming that you believe, as I believe, that this kind of perspective is not only healthy as we get closer to nut cutting time, but it might be necessary. I hope to make you proud and give you value for the hard-earned dollar in these trying economic times. Uh, Last-minute uh, updates here. It appears that there is some kind of movement on a COVID relief deal. Talk about the hokey pokey. Apparently, there is a $1.9 trillion bill that is going through Congress. We will see whether or not that is something or going through the house. We'll see if that's something that the Democrats sign on to. If it has any future with cocaine, Mitch in the Senate is a gigantic question mark. But first, 
Let's go ahead and read our Titanic $10 tier. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory Pie App, Crooky McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, D Laser. Vote for Joe Biden 2020. That took you long enough. Evan, Rob, vote for Trump 2020. Martin. Government Unfiltered, who I need to give a massive shout out because he's the one who hooked up that Jennifer Briney interview. He was the guy that connected us on Twitter. So thank you to Government Unfiltered. Go check out. That's a whole nother podcast. Go check out that podcast. Neil, Archie, Darren, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Joe, David, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, Jim, The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. If you would like to join their ranks, hell, it's only $30. You can do so at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right. A reminder, you can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young and get my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Raise the Dead Season 2 rolls on with Episode 2 on Sunday. But until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this is the only program that dares talk about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.